Hey folks, you're listening to To Know The Land, a show about people's connections to land base, how we interact with the land, how we learn about the land, how we defend the land. It's driving towards resilience, resistance, and reverence for the land. Right now I'm standing on the valley wall uh, of the Aramosa River Valley by the Turfgrass Institute. I'm here with wildlife biologist Matt Isles, and we are here to look at and discuss birds. Uh, Matt has an upcoming workshop on Saturday, September, or Sunday, September 27th, 8.30 till 2 at the Guelph Outdoor School with uh, Adrian Iacovino, a well-loved naturalist in the area. Matt, can you tell us first who you see and hear around you in this valley right now? Right now? Got eyes right now through my binoculars on a waxwing. Cedar waxwing. There's been a few of them moving through and stopping occasionally. There was a few on this poplar, I think, in front of us. Uh, there's a few blue jays passing by. Um, the odd pair of uh, goldfinch or group of goldfinches. Um, I thought I heard a field sparrow a moment ago. There was cardinal making a bit of a ruckus. A couple of robins flying by and there's been a few more of them around. And that squeaky kind of call. I think is a downy woodpecker. Oh we have that probable Cooper's hawk go over a couple of minutes ago. That was nice. beautiful. I like when they are going over and they stop and circle just over ahead of you, mm. just to let you get a good, good view. Yeah, that's about it for this moment. There's oh, some purple finches earlier as well. How did you end up studying birds? Yeah, for the longest time I was like resistant to it, like all through my youth, you know, there was so many bird watchers around, but like my calling was more to like study the, the insects and the invertebrates, all the creepy crawlies really. But then, I don't know, at some point it changed. I had a couple of good mentors. I had a couple of like, ended up in some interesting spots, like locations, and I guess my interest started to broaden and I also just noticed that birds were everywhere. I was running into them a lot. They were like prominent cultural landmarks. Um, they were perhaps more susceptible or more recognizably susceptible to like the the way that the environment was changing, is changing. Mostly due to human activity. Yeah, I was just running into them a lot, so it seemed rude to not study them. 
Eastern Phoebe just Is that who that was? Landed there, yep. Can you name some of those mentors that you mm. encountered that helped you or inspired you maybe to pursue birds a little bit more? Yeah, there was one guy I worked with in Ecuador. Um, before I came to Canada, I wound up in the, yeah, the foothills of the Andes in Ecuador, um, kind of the edge of the Amazon basin on the Napo River, working in like a, a gringo research camp, kind of in the ecotourism slash NGO kind of area. Um, yeah, doing some research mostly, as I said, like on insects. Um, but there was a, a guy there called John, also from the UK, um, with some Spanish um, heritage. His dad was Spanish and he spent a bunch of time there. So he was, he also worked in South America a lot more. Um, yeah, he had, yeah, he was quite into bird watching and he was, I guess, one of my first main mentors. Yeah, kind of one of the first guys who kind of made me think, okay, yeah, this could be pretty cool. Cool. What happened after Ecuador? I wound up in Canada, like the beginning of winter in Ottawa. It was very, very cold. The snow had just flown. I'd never seen winter like it. And it was only the 15th of December. And I was like, oh my gosh, what am I in for here? But I don't know, there was a lot of really colorful birds and I ended up hanging out with the Ottawa field naturalists. There were some good mentors there, including a guy, Roy John, a prominent uh, Ontario birder and uh, writer, teacher. And yeah, one of them had gifted me a field guide, Peterson, second edition from like the 60s. And yeah, I really got into it from there, really. And a couple of years later, wound up at Long Point Bird Observatory and just really started to narrow my focus on birds a lot more. Hmm. I've never been to Long Point. There's the field observatory is a research station, and then also uh, folks can come down there on tours and such. Yeah. So, well, a bit different at the moment, but yeah, Long Point Bird Observatory is the oldest bird observatory in the Western Hemisphere, coming on for having operated for I think it's 55 years now. Um, if not a couple more and yeah there's actually three stations there one of them is typically accessible to the public um, on the mainland the the point the peninsula itself long point is 36 kilometers long so there is a research station the original long point bird observatory um, at the tip of long point um, although that is now also in a state of transition because of erosion mm and high water levels and essentially a few of the buildings are virtually like not safe to use anymore because of rising lake levels and erosion of the tip so it's kind of in a state of flux but yeah there's another station kind of halfway up this the the point called breakwater usually run by just a couple of people it's like the low volume low numbers of birds kind of station um, and then Oldcut is the one that's close to the provincial park um, in kind of cottage, in amongst the cottages there at Old Cut, which is one of the, 
early kind of boating access points to that area historically for fishing and recreation. Where have you been? You've been to Ecuador and throughout Ontario. Where else have you gone to study birds? Yeah, most of my bird-related travels, I guess, have been in Ontario. Um, a bit of time at Long Point, actually a lot of time at Long Point. Um, a lot of it actually out at the tip of Long Point um, for like weeks on end, sometimes with no birds around whatsoever and the most intense storms I've seen in my life. Um, and sometimes with birds just like falling out of the sky. Um, yeah, and just staggering experiences of visible migration and fallouts and yeah that's got to be really some of the highlights it's southern Ontario's last remaining wilderness um, so it's super close to here to Guelph an hour and a half and you can be down at Old Cut um, another hour on a boat if you have one and you could be at the tip which is actually accessible to the public just the last kilometer because there's a lighthouse there um, you can't camp but you can make day visits but again you need a boat to get out there from the right conditions um, I've also been up to James Bay um, in northern Ontario a couple of summers ago um, to do some work on shorebirds um, I've been to Algonquin quite a bit sometimes to work with grey jays um, Prince Edward County um, and also another station on the Ottawa River spent a couple of field seasons at those places and also just north of Kingston up in the Frontenac Arch studying uh, golden wing warblers a few summers ago. So mostly throughout kind of southern and a few forays into northern Ontario. I was in Manitoulin a couple of years ago um, counting and studying sandhill cranes. Um, yeah, that sort of thing. You've also been to the Amazon. I have been to the Amazon as well. I guess that's kind of, yeah, a huge part of how I ended up here in Canada, uh, kind of the roundabout way. And that was a life-changing, transformative experience. Um, opened my eyes to, well, so many things about the world, about nature, about wildlife, about environmental destruction. Yeah. Can you tell me about that? Yeah. Um, like I said before, we weren't really kind of deep in the Amazon. We did have some forays further down the Napo, uh, which is one of the main tributaries. Our, our base was actually just off the Napo, well, on the Napo River um, between Tenor and Coca. Um, but we were kind of a bit further um, up kind of the Amazon foothills. Um, more, there was a lot of primary rainforest around, but a lot of it had already been converted into plantations. So you could see how the landscape had changed and then how those plantations had been abandoned, um, cacao, some of it ranch land, and how it was kind of restoring itself to like um, secondary growth, rainforest, um, and kind of scrubby, interesting scrubby habitat. So I, I was seeing a lot of change on the land. Um, there was like, you know, the creeping industrialization into um, Amazon communities um, you could see in Coca the stark contrast um, with like the tourism industry as a jumping off point for a lot of people to explore um, oh, 
what's the name of the big park there? It's one of the most biodiverse parks in the whole known world. Um, the name will come to me at some point, but in northeastern Ecuador on the, Na on the Napa River. Yasuni National Park, that's it. Um, yeah, Coca was like a, a jumping off. Coca de San Francisco is the full name of the town. Little jungle town, kind of the jumping off point for a lot of people to discover the rainforest and with it brought a lot of um yeah growth or well, why not growth um industrialization and um development um and you could kind of see that a lot of that had been done in a very hurried way kind of unfinished a lot of the buildings um you know there was a lot of visible poverty a lot of stark contrasts it was a very interesting place to be when i was at quite a young impressionable point in my life i suppose but also wow the biodiversity and the the wildlife the the plants the trees oh my gosh of the jungles down there and also the other regions like the the um, andean slopes the the mountains and down to the coast and also then within the coast like the wet mangrove forests of the north, spent a few months out there, and then also um, in the drier, um, kind of scrubby um, coastal habitat of the south. It's an amazing country, Ecuador, very accessible, I think, in, compared to other um, South American countries, at least when I was there, which was now like, well, I guess 11 years ago. Did you study at the University of Guelph? I did not. Um, I studied in Liverpool in England, uh, zoology and then restoration ecology. And then I worked for a consulting firm for a little while. Um, did some other little research projects with the university. And then, yeah, wound up taking that job in the Amazon. And that was 2008, right, as there was that massive like the last big economic kind of collapse and big kind of changes in the world mm -hmm. that's kind of what ended up taking me out there and yeah I was only supposed to be in Ecuador for a year I ended up staying for 15 months and then also coming here and I, I'm still here <laughs> surprise turn of events really Okay, I don't want to say favorite, favorite of all time, but maybe do you have a favorite bird right now? It's so impossibly hard and maybe just impossible to have one single favorite, but there's all kinds of different favorites, like favorite bird experiences or memories, mm. moments with certain birds. Maybe um, that's a better way to phrase it. Maybe do you have any moments that really strike you or oh. birds that really inspire you or get you excited or get you hot right now I'm spending a lot of time kind of looking out for the the last waves of the warbler migration I guess that's passing through our area and southern Ontario in general um, shorebirds as well and also a lot of the hawks are really starting to migrate in fact we've just kind of finished up the first wave of them the broadwing hawks now we'll start getting more turkey vultures and then eventually as 
come to the end of October, the red tails, the red shoulders, and maybe some other stuff, rough legs, bald eagles, and maybe if we're lucky, we might see a golden eagle. Um, so raptors really, yeah, raptors get me hot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> same here. Any impressive like moments? Hmm. Here? Yeah, give me here. I think more people may be able to relate. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I've been lucky enough to explore some pretty wild places. Um, but even here in our backyard in Guelph, there's a lot of cool habitat. And at certain times of year, there's a lot of migrant birds that are passing through. And if you're, I guess if you're out on the land most days or every day, you, it's really nice to kind of chart that, those changes. And that's when it, for me, gets really interesting. Um, and yeah, there's been the opportunity to see some pretty cool birds just passing through this area. Some of the warblers, and even last week I actually found um, a hooded warbler in the Arboretum, which is a pretty rare sight around here. It's possibly only the second one that's been seen in Wellington County. So it's hard to say that's not like a pretty, yeah, a highlight around these parts. Definitely just the other side of the road here, in fact. So I just want to take a moment. Um, a big crew of jays just went by, mm -hmm. and you were saying that they're diurnal uh, migrants. Diurnal so migrants. Yeah. So they're traveling during the day. Is that right? Yeah. Although it's hard to know with these whether they're actually migrating or just moving around Who's more, flocking together. A couple of crows. Oh yeah. Um, and so they don't stop flapping. What I've seen more at, at Long Point or at Prince Edward is those big congregations of blue jays. And then they almost like raptors, almost like the hawks might kind of get up high and then just kind of leave. Mm. Um, these might be just kind of moving around in congregations to make those bigger flocks before they leave. They seem kind of low and hesitant to move on. But mm. I know blue jays are also weird. Sometimes they do what we call eruptions, kind of like the nuthatches are doing right now, where their migration movements are a lot less predictable and more based upon um, depletion of food resources. Mm. I think the blue jays do it to a much lesser extent than other eruptive species. Like Is that why we're hearing so many nuthatches down here? Yeah. Yeah, the red-breasted seem to yeah. be on the move this season. And yeah, every, I don't know, two to six years, they have a tendency to do that as their kind of food crops to the north have been depleted, possibly because they had a really good breeding season this year and the young just like hoovered it all up. Yeah, I feel like I've been seeing a lot of the red-breasted nuthatches and hearing them and being able to ID the difference between the white-breasted and the red recently. It's pretty exciting. As we were walking here, I was mentioning that um, when we're listening to the bird calls, I'm on a tier one, so I, I can tell the robins, the crows, the jays, the chickadees, the very common year-long residents, and I could tell their calls but then Matt's picking up 
all these other calls that are going on that I can't I can't ID at all. Every everything every sound just sort of finds its way into my brain as a robin, chickadee, <laughs> cardinal, or blue jay or something like that. So Yeah, it's it's difficult. Um there's often just a lot of well here in the city there's a lot of extra ambient noise and then yeah, there's a lot of ambient noise from other wildlife as well. But honing in on, I guess, what isn't the usual, what isn't the baseline is the trick to maybe discovering new things and also then learning those sounds. But the autumn's difficult. Fall is hard because they're not singing. Like, they have less recognizable songs. It's all these little contact calls that are often, like, indistinguishable. But again, figuring out that baseline is is the best way to then notice something different. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be the way with warblers too. Like the warblers in the fall are definitely not the same warblers you're seeing in the spring. Like it's it could be a similar species, but their their colors have they're not in their breeding plumage anymore. And yeah, a lot of them are much more dull. Yeah, and they're kind of the, one of the classic bird conundrums a lot of people get puzzled by them this time of year I've had the benefit um, of seeing a lot of them in my hands seeing you know thousands of these birds in my hand through the work at Long Point and elsewhere and maybe picking up on little cues even now like subconsciously you know I find it difficult to like vocalize a lot of the things that I notice when identifying a bird or distinguishing it from something else but yeah, those fall warblers are really tough, um, but part of the fun as well is mm -hmm. the challenge. Yeah. So one thing that you've introduced me to that I still don't really use, um, but I, I've done a little bit before, has been eBird. Right. Yeah, eBird is this fantastic um, online tool. There's apps. There's a website. It's a huge resource where you can learn about, yeah, the birds that are common in your area at different times of year, what other people have been seeing. It amalgamates all this data of thousands, well, now millions of observations globally. Um, researchers can do in-depth analysis on some of that data, and the rest of it can guide um, public interest, public curiosity, um, even, yeah, help guide you to know, like, where to spend your time bird watching. If you want to go out locally or you want to go further afield on a trip, like, where are you going to see certain things or, or what species should you be keeping an eye out for? Um, you can also, like, track your own sightings so it kind of compiles them for you into different categories so you can figure out what you've been seeing in different geographic regions or different times of the year what you've been seeing in your backyard and compare from year to year um, or even like yeah the species maybe like the number of species you see in a year and I know a lot of bird watchers are kind of keen to, to do that a lot of them call it a big year um, where they really like try and see as many species as possible in a year so I've kind of been doing that a bit this year, but I've been trying to do it without driving around so much. A lot of, not to criticize these folks, but like 
a lot of bird watchers have a tendency to like drive to the hot spots to see a lot of the good stuff um, or to um, particularly now with like eBird and social media like to go and see rare vagrant species that have showed up unexpectedly um, and that's pretty fun particularly yeah when something shows up in a place where it's not been seen before um, it's fun to go see that stuff but I've been mostly focusing my bird watching this year on um, kind of what's in my backyard both well literally and figuratively like what I can see um, just on foot or on bicycle when I step outside my door like checking out the local parks and hot spots and along the rivers here in Guelph in particular and I've definitely done some birding like on by <laughs> using my car but I've tried to limit it to where I'm running errands or, or if I'm going out with friends to do other um, other things in nature if we're going for a hike or if we're going butterfly watching or whatever yeah, that's kind of the gist of eBird and big years. And have you see, has there been any highlights in that for you of birds that you've seen this year? Mm, the hooded warbler was nice. Yeah. Um, although I then like spread the word about it, and a bunch of people saw it. So I mean, that's even better, really. Yeah. That a lot of people saw it. Confirmation. Was a, yeah, confirmation. Yeah. Um, for a lot. Well, it was only the second record for the county, and I don't think anyone saw it it saw the first one so it was really nice for a lot of people to see that that was probably a highlight um there were some good ones in the spring some of the warblers golden wing warbler no sorry blue winged i'm still missing a golden wing um and then we'll see what what happens with the well the tail end of the fall migration is when you get some unusual stuff um actually there was also some phalaropes that showed up at a sewage lagoon um, in Drayton, kind of at the north end of the county the other day. Phalarope. Phalarope, yeah, kind of a strange shorebird that breed way up in the north, up in the Arctic, and they will, rather than wading through the mud to find their food, they will like spin around in the water and stir up the mud at the bottom and then pick the food out oh, of those cool. like, yeah, debris, cyclones, I suppose. That's pretty yeah, neat. They're really fun and yeah, I don't think any had showed up in the county since the 80s and a bunch of them suddenly showed up at this sewage lagoon in Drayton <laughs> a few weeks ago. So I did drive to see them, but I also like got a bunch of food from the Mennonites on the way. <laughs> Be sure to hit them up for me too. Yeah, I've got some sausage for you actually in my freezer. Yes. But I didn't, it seemed inappropriate to bring it out here. Yeah, today. well, <laughs> maybe Wednesday. Yeah, definitely. Oh. Do you think of this gotta catch them all kind of uh, <laughs> list keeping for birding? I've heard some people say different things about it. Like it can inspire folks yeah. to continue and to keep going and to keep looking and to always be out, always be mindful, always be observing. Mm. So it's a, a good way to sort of train yourself and push yourself to do better every day. Mm -hmm. And I've also had some people say that these these lists can also distract from really getting to know the birds. Instead, it, it's mm. it just like it's just a check mark, or it's just another name. Mm -hmm. What do you? What, what's your experience of your own list keeping? Yeah. And and what what have you seen other birders? And do you have any general thoughts on whether that's a good thing for beginning birders or not? 
definitely um i've got a lot of thoughts on on it um yeah personally i i do keep lists and i do record on my sightings and actually most years i've really like had the intention of doing a big year or not like a i'm doing a big year and you know in across the whole of ontario because that's yeah a few young people have done that recently and like broken long-standing records and it is really cool and inspiring but wow they are like burning a lot of gasoline like driving around the province and probably spending like a lot of money just focusing on that for a whole year mm -hmm. and so all credit to them it's pretty cool but sometimes that can be like a bit of an access barrier to other folks who are like okay what's the point of me getting into this if someone's already like the best at it and there's a lot of people who have these huge lists but for me i found list making like a good tool when i was learning the new species when i first came here and even now it's a good tool um it's useful in terms of like keeping track of um when certain birds return each year in the spring or when they depart in the fall um i do like yeah the personal challenge of like trying to see as many species as possible but i like doing it on a more local level so mm -hmm. in my backyard there's a hawk right behind you there, sharp chin. Um, in my backyard or, yeah, I really like this like Wellington County or even for me, it's mostly like in the around Guelph on foot and bike kind of listing. But I'm not, you know, it's more of a personal challenge. Um, I like sharing it with, <laughs> with my friends. Um, it's probably a very little interest to like the Ontario birding community. I know a lot of them kind of are more focused on well where there's a lot of migration like places like Pelee and Long Point and like you can see like ridiculous amounts of birds but at the same time it's pretty easy to just go down there and look at all the same stuff that everyone else is seeing so when a hooded warbler shows up across the road in the Arboretum that feels even more special mm -hmm. um, and then just seeing the regular stuff and well heck the other day just at the outdoor school with a bunch of kids we saw like 30 odd broadwing hawks in kettles in the morning and that's that's amazing wherever you see them but to just see them here in our city or on the edge of our city that's even more i don't know inspiring so i think overall like yeah this kind of listing business can be inspiring to people and a good tool a good way to get maybe young people excited about nature connection like you said you've got to catch them all like the pokemon connection is very real yeah and we see that at the outdoor school eh? like kids love that so if you can tell them well this is basically based on like nature and birding and make that connection you might see more kids getting into that kind of stuff and then that once you start getting into it and start caring and making the connections that's when we're going to really start as you get older, thinking about how you vote and like all the ways that you can help protect the land. It's all just so connected. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but yeah, we've got another hawk here. I think another sharpshin. So you're saying this because the head's not as bulky? Yeah, seems smaller, head's not as bulky, tail is I think straight. 
operator. Did I just hear a red tail? Yeah, Cooper's gonna be a bit more kind of rounded. Yeah. So even the one earlier, it did seem kind of straight. But you know, it's funny, this is like one of those things I feel like I gotta get the book out every year to just like yeah. double check. And even at long point when we were seeing hundreds, there was still lots that we would see up close and be like, oh, which is that? Cooper's all sharp shinned and like a bunch of really really like on their game birders were still confused by them so and even in the hand we've found them confusing sometimes i remember going down to hot cliff a couple of years ago oh yeah i'm jealous of you and this one lady i think i've mentioned this on the show before this one lady sitting in her chair i bet you some birders if they're listening they might know this lady sitting in her chair staring out through a gap in some trees beside a field and she could look out into this clear blue sky and just, we'd just be like, Cooper's Hawk. And we'd all be like, what? And we'd wait and we'd wait. And then you'd start to see a speck. And then the speck would come closer and closer and closer. And then it would come overhead and you're like, holy crap, how did she do that? You know, I've, the only other thing I've seen do that were, were robins. Hmm. You know, I've seen robins do that before, but this lady was amazing. She, her eyes and then like her knowledge of their flight patterns and how she moved, how they moved through the air. She was really able to pick up on those things. Oh, and another thing, I, you, you said it, all those broadwing hawks you saw the other day were in a kettle. Can you explain what a kettle is? Oh, a kettle is when a bird of prey, or typically a bird of prey, We'll use the, um, I guess the thermals from the sun, the thermal radiation off the land um, as the air is rising. They can use that to kind of gain extra height. Um, usually they're not flapping much. They're just kind of riding these thermals, gliding, soaring, I suppose, as the air lifts them up. And often they'll, you kind of be doing it in a circle shape and often you'll get a few hawks joining this, uh, well, what becomes a kettle. And eventually you can get these big, big kettles of like dozens or even like hundred birds, you know, um, on these like mass migration raptor days. I've seen uh, kettles of turkey vultures mm. of probably 90, mm. 100, and it's pretty, amazing to see these birds like sometimes if you're lucky you'll see six mm. seven in the sky together Is in the summertime hot cliff you yeah that was a hot cliff yeah. yeah yeah can you explain how hot cliff works to folks who've never been there you might be able to explain it better than i could possibly although i know less about hot cliff and more about long point but if well, the principles I, similar yeah, yeah i guess a lot of those um Raptors, a lot of those hawks and vultures and eagles, falcons as well, are like migrating along the Great Lakes, along the shoreline. Um, and they have to or want to jump across the lake at some point. And so with long point, we would see birds, it would depend on the species, the sharp shins would just come low along the point and then go all the way back. 
and we would see like hundreds of them literally just like going along pecking off like little thrushes and sparrows and stuff on the way staying pretty low and it would take a couple of days for them to get all the way back up the mainland and move on but then we'd see later on in the season stuff like red tails um in kettles really high um coming like up over the lake and then coming down and kind of following the point along back to the mainland um so at hawk cliff i'm not sure if they're just following the shoreline along or whether they're jumping off or coming on and again it might vary depending on whether it's spring migration or fall migration yes yeah some hawk migratory hotspots are active in both and some are only um active like either on the spring or the fall migration just depending on like where they lie on the land and how the birds move along it can you tell me about this workshop coming up Mm. yes so this is um with my friend and colleague um adrian yakovino um we've been kind of pondering about doing a a birding workshop at the Guelph Outdoor School for a while now. Um, something that's, yeah, maybe a bit different to typical birding workshops, a bit more within the, the flavor of what we do at the school, which is more of a, um, we could say, like arousing curiosity and um, connection uh, amongst folks to nature. Um, in this case, through birds, like we're not just focusing on birds, but using birds to connect with the land in a in a deeper way. Um, there's going to be tips on how to get into birding and how to kind of where to start on getting to know the birds, what to look for in terms of visual identification, whether you're using binoculars or not, um, how to understand bird voice um, and song. Um, looking at some of the behaviors talking a a bunch about migration and what's going on on the land right now and how our local landscape fits into that how the Aramosa river and our location within the great lakes like why are we seeing what we're seeing at the moment and who's leaving what's the winter going to look like just what are the changes on the land right now and how are the birds all connected to that i feel like we're going to be asking like a lot of questions and getting out for a big hike and hopefully seeing bunch of bird life Um, we want to kind of make it um, of interest um, and kind of accessible to as many folks as possible we don't want this to be like a typical um, you know a typical like bird identification workshop we want it to be a bit more exciting a bit more loose and kind of questioning in its approach than maybe a typical birding hike mm-hmm. no. do you remember how much it costs and what time it's at i believe it costs 65 dollars to attend plus taxes um and i believe it is starting at 8 30 at stone road um barber scout camp we will have a nice fire going first thing and we'll gather around the fire circle once everyone arrives um, talk about a few of the concepts that we want to think about while we're out on the land together uh, maybe look at some ID resources together 
There might be a bit of a handout. Um, and then, yeah, get out for a bit of a hike, bit of an adventure. Um, we're going to have our lunches out on the land. And just, yeah, engage in like a questioning process um, on, based upon what we see or what we don't see, what we want to see, what we might see, mm -hmm. and what folks might see over the next few months. Um, yeah, on this land or elsewhere. If you're just tuning in to the radio broadcast, uh, you're listening to To Know the Land, a show about people's connections to land base. We're talking with wildlife biologist Matthew Isles about birds and birding in general and his experiences learning about birds. I'll have some information on how to sign up for that workshop on the website to know the land.com if you have any more questions you can always email me at to know the land at gmail.com and Matt is there a way that folks can get a hold of you or, or learn more about what what you've been doing or um, yeah I've got a uh, an Instagram account that I should be a bit more active on um, that could be a good way to follow what I get up to both in terms of bird related stuff and other pursuits um, and that hopefully is now going to with these workshops be more of an outlet for stimulating the discussion I'm involved or the outdoor school and I'm going to be um, connecting with that and um, we're going to be part of a network of organizations in Guelph um, moving making actions in our communities to make Guelph a bird friendly city um, so there might be more material of that coming um, yeah and potentially if folks really have a lot of questions or want to know more stuff Byron can connect you with email and I might give Byron some other website links for maybe folks who are curious about where to get started maybe some bird ID resources maybe some starting points with eBird that kind of stuff and what was your Instagram account my Instagram is wild miles wild one word underscore m dot isles i-l-e-s thank you very much matt no problem So I just wanted to add a little addendum to what Matt was talking about with the migration. Um, there's a great explanation about hawk and raptor migration in southern Ontario from a book called A Field Guide to Migrating Raptors of Hawk Cliff, published by the Hawk Cliff Foundation in 2004. 
and there's a quick introductory section called the annual migration and I'm just going to read from that. There are three key factors that affect annual fall raptor migration, geography, weather, and timing. It is important to look at all of these factors together to determine when and where to see the best raptor flights. Breeding ranges of all raptors are extensive, covering most of Canada. However, the greatest number of migrating raptors that can be observed at Hawk Cliff come from Ontario, Quebec, and the Arctic. What makes the migration unique in our part of North America is that all the birds moving south from these regions will eventually encounter a large body of water, either one of the Great Lakes or the St. Lawrence River. This is important because air over the cooler water tends to sink, minimizing the raptor's ability to soar. The result is that most raptors will not waste extra energy required to fly over large bodies of water. Instead, they'll turn and follow the shoreline. But how do they end up in the skies over Hot Cliff and at times in such large numbers? First, we need to look at the routes the birds take as they move southward. Typically, raptors from the eastern Arctic regions and northern and eastern Quebec have two possible routes that they'll take. Many of these birds will move or be pushed towards the Atlantic coast and will then follow the Atlantic flyway south past Cape May. The rest will eventually hit the north shore of the St. Lawrence River or Lake Ontario and be redirected westward into central Ontario. Birds migrating from the Arctic region west of Hudson's Bay will choose or be pushed towards the western end of Lake Superior. From there, they enter the U.S. through the state of Minnesota. Birds from the northwestern Ontario may also follow this route. The remainder of these birds end up passing southward along the shoreline of Georgian Bay and into central Ontario as well. All of these raptors join up with resident birds of central and southern Ontario as they move south and westward. Depending on the weather conditions and the wind direction, Many of them can be pushed to the northern and western shorelines of Lake Ontario. From there, they drop down to Lake Erie and follow its northern shoreline towards Michigan. It may be possible that a few individual birds cross into the U.S. through the Niagara Falls area. If winds are southerly for an extended period of time, the migration route from Lake Ontario can be shifted to a corridor in further inland. This alternate route may take the birds through areas as far north as St. Thomas and even London. This flight line will ultimately bring the birds into the area between the southern tip of Lake Huron and the north shore of Lake St. Clair. The majority of birds pass passing over Hot Cliff enter into the U.S. to the state of Michigan and move down the main Mississippi Flyway. This route takes them into the southern U.S. or onward into Central and South America. Weather Based on years of observation, it appears that at least some amount of wind is required for good movement of raptors. When the wind is non-existent, there is little or no migration observed. The best winds for viewing large raptor flights have a northerly component and are quite strong. Experience has shown that during the fall season, moderate to heavy northwest winds will push the migrating birds down towards Lake Erie. This helps to concentrate the birds along the lakeshore. 
Given their unwillingness to cross the lake, these birds are forced to drop down to avoid being blown out over the water. This can provide visitors with excellent view of the migrants. Strong northeast winds are also favorable, favorable for raptor migration, but typically allow the birds to fly higher, take advantage of, of tailwind as they move westward. There are often large numbers of birds moving through on such days, but they're more difficult to view and often extremely hard to identify. Not all favorable winds are from the north. If you want to see peregrine falcons, make sure to choose a day with very strong, even gale-force southwest winds. Such winds strike the cliff face and are pushed upward, creating great lift, or updrafts, along the cliff edge. Many falcons, eagles, and osprey take advantage of this lift to migrate effortlessly westward along the lakeshore. Cloud cover and potential for precipitation must also be considered. In many cases, the largest flights are observed within a couple of days after an extended period of rain or fog brought in on a strong cold front. In theory, the birds are held up at some point north and east of Hawk Cliff, unable to pass through the poor weather conditions on the front as the front moves to the east. Once the sky is clear, it's often like a floodgate has been opened with several thousands, even tens of thousands of raptors migrating through in a single day. Cloud cover is also essential for spotting high-flying raptors. The clouds form a backdrop against which silhouetted birds are more easily viewed. The best days are those with cumulus clouds, which are an indicator of strong thermals. These thermals are simply columns of air rising from the ground as it's heated by the sun. They are key to raptor flight, especially for soaring as the birds can gain altitude with little effort. Depending on the strength and the direction of the wind, a thermal may or may not remain static in one area. Often kettles are observed moving back to the east or south over the lake shore and the birds are forced to find a thermal more suitable for continuing their migration. This can lead to reverse migration, with birds heading back eastward. Research has been completed in an effort to understand the mechanics of raptor flight, especially their use of thermals. They found that raptors will migrate within a corridor of roughly 16 to 20 kilometers wide. The birds use their extremely keen eyesight to locate other birds already circling in a thermal within this corridor. It was found that raptors were capable of spotting and then joining another bird riding a thermal up to six kilometers away and then forming a, and a forming kettle even further away. This likely explains how large kettles of one hundreds of hundreds and even thousands of birds can be formed very quickly within the same area. It was observed that raptors will normally enter a thermal at its base at lower altitudes and then immediately go into so strong soaring spiral to stay with the rising column of air. They also found that birds within a thermal soar in both directions. Once the thermal dissipates, raptors will exit the top of the thermal and glide to the next one. Broadwing hawks, for instance, were recorded at gliding at an estimated 60 to 80 kilometers per hour while losing altitude of roughly 20 feet per minute. Timing. The time of year and even the time of day should be considered when 
attempting to observe migrating raptors. The peak period for many raptors, such as the broad-winged hawk or peregrine falcon, occurs over the course of just a few days. The maximum counts for the broad-winged hawk typically fall in mid-September, most often on the 14th or the 21st. Once past this peak period, their numbers drop off dramatically, with only a few individual broad-winged hawks seen at best. To view large flights involving broadwings, you'll need to visit Hawk Cliff area during this time frame. The peak period of peregrine falcon is a couple weeks later, almost always falling on or about the 1st of October. Meanwhile, other species such as sharpshin hawk can be seen on almost any day during migration, even if it's only a few birds at a time. Some species migrate early in the season, while others push through as late as December. American kestrels, sharpshin hawks, ospreys, harriers, bald eagles will begin moving through the area in August. In September, budios begin to dominate the skies, especially broadwing hawks, while on rare occasions far-wandering Swainson's hawks are spotted and counted at Hawk Cliff during these same flights. The month of October brings the most variety with virtually every species counted at some point during the month, including the northern goshawk. The late-season species include the coopers, red-tailed, red-shouldered, and rough-legged hawks, goshawks, and golden eagles. The majority of these species migrate over Hawk Cliff during the last part of October well into November, although individual birds of these species may also be observed earlier in the migration. The male northern harriers aren't seen in good numbers until the snow starts to fly, and you can often catch them right through the end of December. It's also worth mentioning that the different species can be seen in greater numbers at specific times of the day. Early morning brings low-flying harriers hunting for breakfast, along with many sharpshin hawks and kestrels. Once the sun gets higher in the sky and begins heating the ground to produce thermals, and budios such as broad-winged, red-tailed, and red-shouldered hawks make their appearance. They're often seen coming up out of, over, of overnight roosts from bush lots in the area and quickly soaring upward on the nearest thermal. As the day wanes, the thermals subside and the budio flights become lower, offering excellent viewing. Remember, too, that the time of the year can determine where the main flight will occur on a given day. At the start of migration, a great deal of daily flight will occur at or very near the lakeshore itself. Fields adjacent to the shoreline provide the necessary open ground for the generation of thermals and thus the kettling of soaring raptors. As the migration progresses, the main flights will often be found a few hundred yards to a few miles inland. Often visitors headed to the shoreline of Lake Erie will find the avid hawk watchers sitting somewhat inland. In other words, you don't always have to find the most birds right at the lake shore. I just wanted to thank Matt Isles one more time for being on the show, for taking the time to answer questions, to get out in the field and look for birds this morning, including the Cooper's Hawks and Sharpshins, the 25 or so turkey vultures we saw after recording the interview. 
to find out some of those links he was talking about and to find a link to the workshop, you can go to toknowtheland.com forward slash podcast forward slash EP138. On there, you can find those links that Matt was talking about. And again, a link to the workshop he's putting on with the Guelph Outdoor School. Thanks for listening to the show. Take care.